there's definitely, I think, a lot of people who certainly believe in this dichotomy of you're either a minion or you're a boss. And this is completely outside the boundaries of that. This is an, an entirely different spectrum and an entirely different way of thinking about the work that we do, the way that we interact with people, and how to be successful. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Have you ever been called upon to lead a project, a process, or a group of people? What skills or competencies were important to doing that work successfully? Leadership as a traditional field of study has largely been rooted in business and commercial industries rather than in the complex practicalities of administrating higher education. Leadership as a concept has broadly been described as a set of attributes, skills, and behaviors, a form of influence, a type of relationship, and as a transformational force responsible for instigating and guiding change, and more. These descriptors essentially just scratch the surface of the many ways to categorize and operationalize leadership. But where do instructional design and related professionals fit into this picture of leadership? In 2014, authors Marsha Ashbaugh and Anthony Pena addressed this issue in a chapter published in a book titled Design in Educational Technology. As documented through their research, they contend that instructional designers demonstrate leadership competency when they are called upon to A, communicate effectively in visual, oral, and written form, B, apply current theory to solve practical problems, C, identify and resolve ethical and legal implications of educational or training product development in the workplace, D, lead design teams and mentor junior designers, and E, pass on ID knowledge to faculty and subject matter experts. They conclude that, from these definitions, it is clear that the comprehensive nature of creating and producing academic designs will inevitably move an instructional designer into a leadership role at some point, regardless of position or job description. In practical terms, Ashbaugh and Pena developed a model called the seven P's of leadership for instructional design, which includes, number one, prescience, envisioning the future and promoting that vision. Number two, preventive or proactive thinking, carefully anticipating the future, both its opportunities and problems. Number three, provision for unexpected and unknown, having backup plans and reserves. Four, personality, collaborative and caring communicator, working well with and showing care to others. Number five, productivity, be productive and expecting hard work from others. Number six, psychological or emotional toughness for difficult decisions, making and implementing difficult decisions based on sound judgment. And seven, personal convictions, exhibiting moral character consistently. Of course, there are significant differences in the form and function of leadership as a personal role, a project or process role, an interpersonal role, or an administrative position with organizational or managerial responsibilities. Traditionally, instructional designers in higher education have been categorized or just functionally perceived as support staff with limited scope for autonomy and organizational influence. However, in recent years, some industry voices have considered and even argued for elevating the professional classification of instructional designers to that of faculty or academic professionals. This shift would ideally better represent the diverse and transformational impact of instructional design efforts, provide more standardized pathways for career advancement, and better cultivate scholarly contributions which are largely viewed as incidental self-directed activities when conducted as a traditional staff member. The reality is that regardless of knowledge, skill, 
educational preparation and professional experience, it can be very difficult for instructional designers to advance into recognized leadership positions when operating in an environment that functionally views them as little more than technical support. In previous Instruction by Design episodes, we've touched on how instructional designers act as agents of teamness and collaboration, practical project managers, and scholars advancing a diverse body of knowledge around teaching, learning, and technology. The complexity, impact, and reach of the profession seem like a natural fit for purposefully advancing a dimension of leadership as well. As Ashbaugh and Pena thoughtfully conclude in their book chapter, one implication from this study is that leadership, when activated in the design process, acts as a predictor of quality products, specifically of academic courses. And make sure to stick around for today's hot topic. We're going to dive into a recent Inside Higher Ed blog post that offers a vision of the future for learning management systems. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Jeanette Senecal from ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are my colleagues, Celia Kutraitiwa, Aaron Kraft. All right, so let's start at the ground level. What does leadership mean to you? As an instructional designer, I really agreed with some of these resources that uh, Jeanette provided to us in advance, that there was, at, at a time, we were simply support, we're support staff, uh, mainly centered around course design efforts. However, I would say that in my arc over the past, geez, seven, eight years now, I've seen a huge change in what's being asked of designers. I would say leadership is a big part of that. You're asked to take on more and more roles where you're needing to have a clear vision and be able to analyze the situation, see what it needs, see what the learning needs are, and then strategize a map or a method to get to that goal, right? And mm -hmm. so, yeah, so you have to have a strong vision. You have to be able to map that goal. And then along the way, there are a lot of little skills you need, interpersonal skills and so on to get to that point. I agree with you on, you know, that a leader needs to be able to have that vision and work towards a goal. But I'd also add the ability to motivate others. Um, so usually, you know, in, in a leadership field or a leadership position, you have others that you're trying to bring in to work towards that same common goal that you're working towards. So you're also having to provide motivation to them and create some of that buy-in so that everyone is working towards the same thing. I think that's an important feature. I mean, that's, that's key. As we kind of introduced in the beginning, there are so many almost abstract ways to think about, categorize, conceptualize leadership, but kind of at the end of the day, you're, you're working with people and you're trying to accomplish some kind of goal together. And perhaps leadership means that you're in a bit of the driver's seat or you're the one that's setting culture to enable that action to happen. And motivation is a huge part of that. Absolutely. Have either of you ever found yourselves in a defined leadership role, a position? Not of my own choosing. <laughs> Explain. Yeah, so I, I'm not a natural born leader. And I, I don't mean that um, as in I can't do it, but it was never a natural inclination necessarily. Um, I was always very comfortable with just like, here are the tasks you need to accomplish and it being a very rote and prescriptive effort on my part. However, 
that's not really the way the world is. So, you know, I, what, what happened a few years ago, I was asked to lead a small team on establishing image and branding design guidelines for uh, Arizona State University's adoption of digital credentials. And that was probably my first time where I was given a, a very clear task, but there was no clear path to that goal. So I had to lead a group of people in, in getting us to that endpoint of, of coming up with those uh, design and, and branding guidelines. Admittedly, the first meeting, I was completely lost. I had no idea what to do, but after some contemplation... And well, and then reaching out to some of the other teammates behind the scenes and just getting uh, a feel for, for their perspectives. We made up for the last time. And I think we ended up being uh, a, a very prolific group and very expedient in pulling together a, a draft that went to the, I think, vice provost or provost, which eventually got approved. Mm-hmm. So, so there was an outcome. There was, a, there was a very successful outcome, you know, and it required, it was a months long effort and I had no idea what to do when I started. So, but I, so I think that, that made me feel a lot better. Like this isn't, leadership isn't impossible. It's a skill that anybody can cultivate. That was probably my first real experience with something tangible in a, in a professional environment. That's a really as good a, example. I, I think too, that, that illustrates a little bit about how uh, when being asked or voluntold, perhaps, to take leadership in some capacity, there can be a couple of factors. Like one can be you have infrastructure, like you have systems in place to know what you need to do, to jump into that, to be prepared, to be successful. Or as in your example, you kind of had to figure it out. You kind of had to feel your way and develop into it and find that path. So it nudged you perhaps a little bit beyond what you had ordinarily been prepared for. Um, so over my the course of my career, I've had um, a few leadership positions that were not necessarily paid positions, but more like voluntary groups that are working together that I've led. And with each one, I'd say I learned something new in skill building and figuring out, you know, what what kind of qualities are needed or what do I need to bring to the table anytime I'm starting with a new group. Most recently, I was asked to lead the implementation for the synchronous learning model that ASU took on during the move from the face-to-face learning to remote during the pandemic. And that was an interesting role to take because things had already kind of gotten started along you know, the way before I came on board. So once I started it, I had to kind of take a step back and really start to define the goals of what my position was going to be, what was being asked of me, what was needed for the college in order to have the end goal and what would look, what would success look like. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably the biggest, um, the largest goal that I've ever had to work with in leadership. And I think the one thing that I had to do in order to be effective was to organize and communicate Mm -hmm. and bring in all of the various stakeholders to make sure that I understood everyone's perspective on the, on the changes that were going to be made. That's fantastic. I think that's a powerful example too of, you know, 
again, building into structure a little bit. You didn't just walk in. It wasn't there ready for you. So that's quite the, can be quite the challenge. I think that my understanding of leadership as a concept, it took really a while for me to understand or think of it in more than terms of just an administrative job or a managerial expectation, but to gradually over time reframe my thinking around the fact that leadership can be an element in almost any of the work that you do. You can choose to be a personal leader in your own job and your own projects and that that taking on that responsibility for yourself can increase your motivation and give you a pathway to demonstrate your competency and your skill in a way that ideally is well aligned to the goals of your institution or project or whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. But there's definitely, I think, a lot of people who certainly believe in this dichotomy of you're either a minion or you're a boss. And this is completely outside the boundaries of that. This is an an entirely different spectrum and an entirely different way of thinking about the work that we do, the way that we interact with people, and how to be successful. So on the surface, adding the expectation for leadership skills and responsibilities may appear as an additional burden on top of the already complex ID role. So why is it valuable philosophically to consider how IDs can or should fulfill important leadership roles in higher education? 10, 15, 20 years ago, you were expected to be a support role, but now the responsibilities are changing. There are very unique needs per institution, learning needs. Every school I worked at, every college I worked at has a completely different circumstance. And what they want to, what they want is the instructional designer to be able to analyze the situation, find out where the gaps are in learning for them. Mm -hmm. And what they need is completely different than what any what another school or, or institution might need. And then to be able to achieve uh, a, 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 the learning goal by, by connecting, by filling in that gap, right? There are tons of skills and, and effort. And like you said, leadership behind solving those big problems like that. So it's, it's definitely a reduction of our capabilities to be confused with IT and then say, oh, the ID is here. They can fix my, my LMS. But then after that, I want them to go away. We're, this is an increasingly more collaborative world we're in. It's increasingly globalized. We're having to work together through shifts in, in that caused by the pandemic, for example, right? Mm-hmm. So we're being asked to do more. Universities are having to become incredibly flexible just to stay uh, relevant and meet the needs of their students. And then by extension, we're being asked to do a lot of things now. And it's, it's much more overt than I think it used to be. And I think that's why suddenly you have all these different job titles that are starting to bubble up. Like, well, are we instructional designers? Are you a learning producer? <laughs> and, and no two places can seem to agree on, on that. Our Venn diagram. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And check out a previous episode, the Venn diagram episode. Season three, episode four. Great. I think that's a great example. Well, looking back at the the readings that you provided for us and looking at the one by Ash and Pena, the chapter, they mention the correlation between skills that project managers have, IDs, and leadership. Mm-hmm. And it shows that all three of those areas have very similar skill sets and leadership, general leadership competencies being communicate effectively, 
in visual, oral, and written form. Apply current theory to solve practical problems. Identify and resolve ethical and legal implications of educational training, product development in the workplace. All of those are also skill sets that instructional designers need. That I think is what we bring to the table when we are meeting with subject matter experts, just as Aaron you know, talked about. We're bringing that in with our expertise, our experience in instruction and education. And we're talking to you know, faculty where a majority of the time in higher education, faculty come in with their subject matter experience and they know all of their content, but they've never been formally trained in teaching and pedagogy. And so that's a piece, um, like a, almost a missing puzzle piece that we bring in. And so we pull all of that together and we almost, when I, and as Aaron was talking about his experience and leadership, and I think it was last year or the year before I was watching him, you know, maneuver through putting a course together. And my first thought was, no, you were a leader then. You were pulling together to develop this course and working with all of these various people, you know, stakeholders in, in the course development process, but you were almost leading the way through that process to bring all of them together, communicate, collaborate, and, and create a product, the course, the actual course itself. And you brought that vision and helped kind of guide that vision. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's the piece that you know, we are support. Yes, we're asked all the time, you know, can you fix this? Can you fix that? But when it comes to development, full on development, we might ne- not necessarily be in the project management lead position, but a lot of the times we end up leading the discussion and leading the the path toward the, the goal. Yeah, absolutely. I'm always joking that I'm you know, trying not to put instructional designers at the center of the universe, but <laughs> inevitably it happens anyway. But the kinds of um, the things that you're both describing to me speak to this concept called boundary spanning. And in a nutshell, most research would define this in a sense of boundary spanning is a term to describe individuals within an, within a network or an organization who have or adopt the role of linking the organization's internal networks with external sources of information. So this idea that there might be silos that exist somewhere somehow, and the role that the instructional designer might bring to that is to mush everybody together, to be in the middle, to be that central node in the middle of the network. And that seems a natural fit or a natural point where explicit leadership roles could have a good fit. I think philosophically, it makes sense to look to those people with those, you know, skill sets and responsibilities because they do have that centralized knowledge. It's hard for me to consider leadership uh, without the title of manager. I'm learning that you can be a leader, Mm -hmm. as Celia was saying, simply by taking all these seemingly disparate elements bringing them together for an effective final learning product and you know all the sub skills that go into that the communication the project management and then you know in the entire time having that bold vision manifest itself through your effort successfully right mm-hmm. 
it wasn't until just recently and even today, you know, this conversation where I started to see that as leadership as opposed to, oh, I have the title of manager. I'm in charge of people. I'm leading those people. Uh, I think that's how I used to define it. And that that's definitely a component. It's funny because when we we're discussing earlier our different definitions of leadership, you two mentioned people. Mm-hmm. And I just sort of said, yeah, communication skills. <laughs> <laughs> So maybe that just means I don't uh, want to talk to people. I don't know. Um, but I, you know, and, and by the way, if you want to be an instructional designer, you have to talk to people I'm finding out. So <laughs> surprise. Um, yeah. <laughs> Having to break out of that little uh, uh, shell of mine. So how can instructional designers prepare and work toward leadership roles? Where are their barriers? And before you jump in your answers, I just wanted to point out that in that Ashbaugh and Pena chapter, And again, this is dated back to 2014, but they compiled a list or a survey of some of the most popular instructional design or educational technology or related um, master's and doctoral programs in the U.S. And only 15% included a specific leadership academic component. And that surprised me a little bit. I mean, yes, I know from my own experience as a master's student, I didn't have a course in leadership, but... I still kind of had this perception that it's important as you progress through a higher level of educational attainment and you're working in the field of education, that that would be important. So why is it not more frequently represented in the academic programming? I've complained about that too. And and when I say complain, it's more uh, lighthearted. I actually was very um, happy with what I learned for like the foundations of instructional design processes, Addy, for example, and then um, and we learned about e-learning tools and we had to do projects based on a certain e-learning tool that we picked out. And so, you know, it, the, it got me a job, it got me a, a great job and it led me on uh, to a fantastic career in the field. However, I've lamented that I was never taught consultation skills. <laughs> Dang it. You have to talk to people and you have to be able to be a good listener and to be, I think, a good leader, you seriously, you need to be able to listen and respond to people in a way that doesn't shut them down. It's easy to say, oh, no, studies and textbooks don't agree with your point whatsoever. You right, know. right. You have to be able to, you know, gently massage a message and, and then like waves on a shore keep pushing that until maybe you start seeing some effectual change in the direction uh, that you deem appropriate because you're the leader in that field. So you have to keep working that angle, but at the same time, you don't want to drive away your audience. So it's a, it's a balancing act. I loved everything I learned. I could have just, I might've swapped out one of the courses, maybe on knowledge management. I'm sorry. That just wasn't a very exciting course for me. I would have loved to have swapped that out for just good old like consultation skills or project management. You know, that's definitely a big one, but in just my opinion, uh, I find that to be a skill that you pick up along the way. I don't think you necessarily have to focus on it, but that's an opinion I'm sure you two might feel strongly the other way. I hope all these curriculum programs in the universe are listening to this episode right now. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you you know talked about the theory and being able to say, no, that's not how it works. Like <laughs> theory says this is what's going to what's going to be the the way. Because the article Leadership in Online Learning and Higher Education talks about learning agility. 
And I think that's something that instructional designers definitely need to have under their belts is learning agility and the ability to respond and adapt because things are constantly changing in the teaching field and in education. And there's always some new studies coming out about what works best. And so you kind of have to stay on that forefront in order to be able to lead into the future and have a vision that is a futuristic vision because you, the goals that you're motivating uh, groups towards are usually things that you're not necessarily realizing today. You know what I mean? Like it, it has to constantly be moving forward. And so being able to, to look at the future, think about how you'd be able to use what you know right now, but then be able to adapt and change later if needed. I think that's a, a very important skill set to work on as you're working your way towards leadership goals. I agree. And I mean, that's perfectly aligned to the seven P's, those first two, the prescience and the proactive thinking. That's clearly a very, very important skill to develop. Okay, so one practical tip then that I can think of for instructional designers considering, you know, how they can proactively prepare and think about moving towards leadership roles and responsibilities is I hesitate to use the word mentor, but I think of it more as, you know, finding a person or an organizational group that has some kind of consistency with your goals or your identified areas of growth and hang out with them. So that could mean, you know, a network within your own organization, or perhaps you join something like the ID to ID buddy program, or even just reach out to other designers who are prolific on Twitter. Most of them are quite friendly and willing to engage. And it's, it's nice to get an external perspective and to help figure out that pathway to move yourself forward if you're a bit stuck. I love that you say that because that's something that I've attempted to work on over the years. And it's always the thing that I put to the side the most. Mm -hmm. And I'm still trying to learn how to build that in, you know, and make uh, like specific scheduling pieces, like, no, I'm going to schedule myself from this time to this time. And I am going to focus on, you know, networking, or I've joined groups to, you know, start trying to talk to people on Twitter. And then I start to fall off because, you know, everything else gets in the way. Yeah. But I, I completely agree that 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 is a very important piece, because you do learn through that, you know, what others are doing, but also to Aaron's point about communication, you're learning how to communicate with others. Mm -hmm. And that's part, like the networking part is probably, probably the piece that I have the hardest time with um, when it comes to just in general, uh, you know, talking to new people that I don't know. It's something that I have, I have difficulty with. So it's something that I try to put myself in to challenge myself. You know, I throw myself into these groups to challenge because it, I know that I do have a harder time with that piece. But, you know, in thinking about that communication, it's, it is an important skill. We need to start a new club, the severely introverted instructional <laughs> designer group. Yeah. <laughs> Founding member. I got into this field because I thought I'd be in front of a computer all day, not talking to people, but I'm actually now in front of the computer doing nothing but talking to people. Right. So, oh, well, 
strange, strange times we live in. <laughs> it is important to stay connected to the uh, active instructional design community, the active learning communities that are um, well everywhere. You have the, these peer-to-peer programs, ID to ID, but then there, there are Twitter communities. I remember when, when YouTube was the thing, you find videos on YouTube and then you go to the comments section and there's people going back and forth having, you know, these are the good comments, not the, not the bad <laughs> YouTube comments, but the good YouTube comments. Uh, and, but it's, it's gotten so much more rich now with, with this dynamic uh, media that we have, social media. Staying in touch with the community is just probably a life-saving effort that you can make. And that's going to be your, um, what's that thing you throw out in the water when someone's drowning the... Uh, lifesaver raft. Life raft yeah life raft i you know because you're gonna have a question someone's gonna come you know faculty always ask me things that i never in a hundred thousand years would, would, would have come up with on my own and so i'm like oh well let me look that up for you oh my gosh where do i go to look that up but you you can throw that lifeline out to the communities or the sos and then someone's gonna throw you back the the lifeline because there's somebody there in this day and age there's somebody that knows there's somebody that's dealt yeah. with it already, but you have to know how to tap into those uh, resources. And I'm just now getting motivated to do that and break out of my, you know, uh, introverted ID shell. Yeah. Join those communities. Even if you're going to be a lurker, like, <laughs> yeah. <me>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a place for lurkers for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That crowdsourcing is really powerful though, Aaron. That's a, that's a great tip as well. Well, you got to stay relevant. And that's one of the uh, defining qualities of a leader is to provide relevant solutions to yeah. novel problems within a learning context. So yeah, you got you to gotta keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on. That's just part of the job. If you're going to take on the leadership aspect of instructional design. For sure. Part of the reason why instructional design is so much fun is that no two days are the same and you are presented with incredibly unexpected new dilemmas all the time. And it's also partly why it's such a frustrating job at times. <laughs> Sometimes very little continuity. So keeps moving. Yeah. <laughs> you never know what the day is going to bring. That's true. Well, this is a great conversation about leadership and how it connects to the current reality and perhaps future direction of the instructional design field. I sincerely believe that we have the capacity and perhaps even the responsibility to advance the diversity and effectiveness of leadership practices in our professional environments. All right, let's move on over to hot topic time. Hot topic. We can't transition without it now. I know. <laughs> so today we're chatting about a recent Inside Higher Ed blog post by Stephen Mintz titled Reimagining the LMS. The subtitle or teaser line expands on that with what the next generation digital learning environment should look like. To be honest, I started reading this almost expecting just a rant about all the terrible or downright annoying issues pervasive to most of the existing commercial learning management systems. And actually, there was a little bit of ranting at the beginning. But after that, the author presented a thoughtful list of ideas for how a next-gen system could significantly improve the learning experience. So what was your reaction to this on-point evaluation of LMS problem areas and pathways for improvement? Which of those wish list items stuck out to you? Well, can I just say... The author, Stephen, does not mince words. Ah, very funny. Okay, okay. I know, I, I hear so many complaints about whatever learning management system we're using at the time that 
I sort of brush it off at this point because I'm like, well, yeah, I understand that there are limitations. Anything based in in a digital technology, I think, has some inherent limitations, especially with the user interface. And I don't think you're going to see any major shifts. Just in this, again, my opinion, but I don't think you're going to see any major shifts until we have a Web 3.0. Like some of the underlying code is going to have to be reimagined, just like they're wanting to do with the uh, LMS experience in this article. Uh, in order for the experience across the board to be um, more seamless and more intuitive for for the human. Mm -hmm. However, that being said, I have noticed a trend towards data dashboards. Point number three says we need to provide students and instructors with data dashboards. And I do find this trend lately that uh, getting data from the LMS and being able to display it in a user-friendly way or, or reading-friendly way mm -hmm. is more and more popular and more and more pertinent for program coordinators and their goals, whatever those goals might be, um, whether it be student retention, finding uh, students who maybe aren't uh, or who are at risk quickly mm -hmm. or, or whatever metric of engagement they're trying to look at. But that is definitely... Uh, more and more popular these days. So uh, I, I, I do think that'll be, uh, or I hope that's something that we see more of in future iterations of uh, LMS design. I completely agree. And that's one thing that caught my eye as well. It was the dashboards because actually yesterday I just met with some program directors and the data analyst team to get our first version of a data dashboard for identifying at-risk students. Just the, the ability to take, you know, what reports are provided within the LMS. We went from having to click one report at a time, download each piece separately to bringing it into one dashboard where we could look at it as a whole picture. And having that capability would have been amazing in the in the LMS, but we had to you know move the data elsewhere in order to get the bigger picture. So yeah, the data dashboards definitely were a big thing, but also this was pretty timely for me as I just finished um, reviewing a course over the weekend for Quality Matters, and a lot of the the features that the author provides in the article were features that you know, are part of the standards for quality matters, but it's all of the focus areas that we kind of had to talk about when we, you know, came together to talk about the course and what, what was working and what wasn't working. So getting to see all of this and realize like, yes, it would be amazing to have an LMS that does all of this in one, and we're not trying to make connections to all these external tools uh, because that, you know, that can be, cumbersome at times, trying to figure out what tools can we connect to this LMS, what tools will work with this LMS, and then what tools can we not use because it's not going to work well. You know, and that's something that colleges look at when they're trying to even decide what LMS to use. So to your point, Erin, about infrastructure and the web, like literally being ready to support this kind of advanced development, yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think really a lot of this boils down to user experience. Like you could really categorize almost everything pointed out here as a function of user experience 
and the way that commercial um, vendors have to essentially work toward the lowest common denominator. What's the least robust system that they're tools would work in for an organization? What's the least complex level of interactivity that the diverse student body would be able to work with their existing devices? So all of those constraints then sometimes may mean we do end up with very problematic parts of our learning management systems and practice simply because of that lowest common denominator function. And on the dashboard point, absolutely that one stuck out to me. The the description here that the author presented was compelling, especially the term actionable data. Really the emphasis being on dashboards are no good if they don't really provide information about what respectively an instructor or a student user needs to do about it or needs to know about it. If it's not accurately showing current scores that students need to go back and do something about what's the point? Why bother? Right. I think the other very common theme across all of the elements here is really integration. This really begs for a much more comprehensive view of the end-to-end experience that learners have within an educational organization. So much more natural, realistic access to tools for advising, for library, for, you know, any of the other ancillary services that are part of their educational experience, they are often very disconnected or they're linked into a learning management system, but it's awkward. It takes them out of that moment of doing the work that they're trying to do. So yeah, user experience integration, absolutely agree that this is a very important direction for the future. I was going to say the other one that stuck out to me was reinventing the online experience. And I love that the, that the author mentions that we have a lot to learn from video game designers. Yes. Um, you know, learning how to enhance the engagement, sustain attention, drive persistence, and make experience more immersive. That piece stuck out to me because it it is the way that we're, we're, we're moving. And we still have courses that don't even have an LMS or they don't use the LMS to provide any materials outside of their in-person experience to the students. But if we think in that realm, in that way that, you know, this author has laid out in reinventing the online experience, even if we, we have face-to-face classes and the students are in person, having a place for their content to be stored and used as a resource outside of, you know, that class time, that's important. But, and, but also being able to make that content engaging for the student to want to go there and use it as a resource. Heck yeah, building on like strategic narrative and designing in a, what a lot of game designers would refer to as a pleasant level of frustration, enough to continue to motivate people to finish the quest. Like that could be very powerful if coupled with the engaging learning materials. Man, are they talking about like these AAA titles that have million dollar budgets? Like, yeah, that, <laughs> <I know. laughs> hey, yeah, let's make a chorus that's that gorgeous. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. the media part of it. But I mean, there could be some design learning that could occur there, I suppose. But the, the point of it, you know, on the engagement piece, I think is the, the bigger part. I like the idea of adding um, like a repository that can serve as a, a portfolio. I, I don't know why we always have these. And sorry, vendors, I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish your product whatsoever. But how come these LMSs can't just have an integrated built-in portfolio 
I mean, it's simple to use. The, and the students literally <laughs> submitting all of their work through the LMS most of the time. Yeah. Can't, isn't there a way we can just pull it all together and, and just a, a simple, quick, neat little user interface for it to display it and organize it? That's a good point. All right, friends, thank you for considering these thoughtful concepts for a bright, shiny LMS future. We also pondered many aspects of leadership and how the profession of instructional design can or should intersect. I think you were both skilled leaders and will continue to model and advance embedded leadership roles throughout your professional journey. I'd like to thank Celia Kuchwatiwa and Aaron Kraft for reflecting on the complex concept of leadership in our professional environments. And as always, we have deep appreciation for Aaron as both a participant and the guy who has to edit out all of our flubs and shenanigans. If you, our audience, would like to share your perspective on leadership and how it impacts your professional role currently or in the future, reach out to us on Twitter or by email. This is an important conversation to continue. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Absolutely agree that this is a very important direction for the future. Data, you know, was it, is this big data or is this like medium data? <laughs> Small data, I don't know.